Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with Richard Wagner's Prelude and Liebestod from Tristan Unisolde. This is one of the most famous works uh, from the operatic repertoire, certainly one of the, the most celebrated works from opera played by orchestra when taken away from the opera for which it was written and, and played as a purely instrumental piece. The wonderful thing about this uh, Prelude and Liebestod, the love death as it's known, for anyone who's not a Wagner lover, uh, is that you get uh, the beginning and the end of the opera and don't have to hear the unbelievably powerful, magnificent middle, all of the, the music that goes on for the three and a half hours between the prelude and the final scene. Wagner's Prelude and Liebestod, uh, particularly the prelude, is very uh, important in the history of music uh, for a number of reasons, which we'll get into in a moment. Uh, I should probably just explain a little bit about the, the genesis of, of the work or of the, the pieces and, and why they exist in this purely orchestral form. Wagner wrote this opera in the mid-1850s. Uh, he had uh, been hard at work on his um, Ring of the Nibelungen, that incredible four-opera creation that occupied much of his or most of his adult life. Uh, he'd gotten as far as the third opera, Siegfried, uh, but had run into some trouble sort of figuring out how to proceed and really felt he needed to take a break. At the same time, he'd fallen in love with and I guess begun to have a, a love affair with a married woman, uh, Mathilde von Wesendonck, and uh, she was quite an accomplished poet. And so uh, he was inspired by his love for her and also by her poetry to fashion a, uh, a different opera, an opera on a very ancient theme, the legend of Tristan und Isolde. Uh, in the opera, and I guess in the legend, uh, the story is of a, a brave, handsome young knight, Tristan, who uh, is charged with bringing Isolde, a great beauty, back to become the bride to his boss, to his king, uh, King Mark. It seems that at least in the story of the opera, Tristan and Isolde have known each other before she had found him wandering in the woods, wounded some years earlier, and had nursed him back to health from near death. Uh, and then he had gone on his way, and now they meet again. But it seems in the, the body of the, the story of the opera that uh, they had very much loved each other, although that love had never in any way been consummated. So here they now, uh, when the opera begins, here they now are on a ship, Tristan bringing Isolde back to uh, become the bride to his his king, King Mark. And in fact, there's all this stuff going on between them because they sort of have this feeling, or she certainly has this feeling, that she really loves Tristan, but he doesn't really respond to her interest. And uh, so she decides that uh, that since she would rather be married to Tristan and not be married to King Mark, that they should drink a, a poison draught together. So she uh, asks her lady-in-waiting, Brangena, to bring uh, a poison draught, and she will secretly drink it and give it to Tristan. Uh, her, her beloved uh, lady-in-waiting, Brangena, has no intention of doing that, and she instead brings a love potion, which they both drink and which precipitates all the 
action of the opera or the non-action because it's not a very dramatic type of, of action. It's a, much more a, an opera of sort of, of thoughts and of, of love and of expression of emotion than it is of actual action. Uh, but what happens is, of course, they fall hopelessly, passionately in love with each other. Of course, the, the theory that I think we're left with is that they probably were that already and the, the draught may have in fact just been something to nudge them along their way. Uh, so the opera unfolds as this uh, hopeless love that they experience. Finally, um, once they've landed in the second act, they're caught by King Mark and his men, and Tristan is mortally wounded. The opera ends with Tristan's death and with Isolde standing over him, imagining him coming back to life and then expiring herself. And so they are both finally united in death. Thus, the the love of death, this final scene. So what orchestras typically play, as we are this evening, is they play the prelude, this beautiful 10-minute introduction to the opera, and they follow it immediately with the final scene, the love death. Occasionally it's sung, it's done with a, a soprano, very hard to find because a Wagnerian soprano is a, a very uh, valuable commodity. And, and for Nisolde to, to sing the incredible things she's asked to sing and to sort of ride, her, for her voice, voice to ride over the sound of the orchestra, one needs a very special, gigantic kind of voice, which is not easily found. So the tradition has been really to play the love death, the final scene, the six or seven minute final scene, without the soprano. The soprano part is actually very strange in that she basically is just kind of entering this trance where she is standing there uh, imagining that he's not dead. But look, his eyes, they flutter, and I feel his beautiful breath against me, and and look how brave he looks. And she, she, sort, of, uh, she sort of goes through this, this rather possessed, bizarre imagining that he is in fact still alive before she expires with him. So when one takes the vocal line out, the orchestra fabric is so beautiful and so complete that it exists quite wonderfully as a purely orchestral piece. So the version we're doing is the non-soprano version, is the typical orchestral version where the prelude and the Liebestod are both featuring the orchestra only. The prelude, as I mentioned, is a, a very important work in the history of music uh, because it introduces what's called the Tristan chord. If you hear the very opening, the cellos have this beautiful rising interval, and as they fall, the woodwinds come out in with this very odd chord that seems to be as unstable as a chord can be. It's beautiful, but it wants to resolve. It wants to find a much more stable kind of chord. And yet, even when it resolves, it resolves into a chord that also kind of pushes us forward and doesn't feel like closure. And so the whole prelude is fascinating in that it's built on all of these so-called Tristan chords that never seem able to resolve. And so it's, it's, it's a metaphor, of course, for the unresolvable love of Tristan and Isolde. And in essence, what's so magical about this prelude and about so much of Wagner's love music and music in this opera is that it does create this sense of unending longing and of never reaching a sort of conclusion or a cadence or, or something that actually is satisfying and that creates closure. And, and Wagner's able to build not only over this 10-minute prelude, but over the entire almost four-hour opera, this, this incredibly restless sense of longing and of passion that is never able to, to be resolved. Uh, so that's why this, this prelude is such a, a unique piece. It's a 10-minute piece that just never finds a resolution. Uh, it's a beautiful piece, and uh, as is the incredibly poignant and, and touching Liebestod, the love death at the end. So here now, the prelude and Liebestod from Richard Wagner's opera Tristan und Isolde. Uh, the orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. 
and WMHT.org. That was Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, played by the Albany Symphony. The central work on uh, this program was Christopher Rouse's incredible trombone concerto from 1992. So it's uh, more than 20 years old now. It was uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning piece. Probably, I'm almost positive, the only trombone concerto ever to win the Pulitzer Prize. And a trombone concerto by its very nature is a, a rather mystical beast. We don't encounter them very much in the orchestral world. And I'm not entirely sure why. I, I think that's true of a number of instruments, violas and trombones and bassoons, uh, certain instruments that are very critical to the orchestra but are not immediately thought of by composers as solo instruments. And yet um, that's, if, in essence, exactly why Chris Rouse was so eager and interested to write such a concerto. And he even has a note in the front of the score that you know his, his understanding of trombone concertos generally is they tend to be very light, uh, fluffy kinds of pieces. Uh, most frequently, uh, the most frequent trombone concertos, the ones most encountered, are, are trombone concertos that were written in France in the 19th century, often as just uh, demonstration pieces at the, the conservatoire to show off kind of the virtuosic capabilities of trombones. And he very much didn't want to do that. He wanted to write a really substantial a musical concerto that featured the trombone. And in fact, he succeeded greatly at that. The work's genesis was such that Leonard Bernstein figures very, very largely in the creation of the piece. The work was commissioned by the New York Philharmonic for their principal trombonist, Joseph Alessi. And uh, I'm told that with this set of commissions, uh, the orchestra went to the soloists that they wanted to feature from within the orchestra and asked them to select a composer whose music they, they liked and whom they would like to have write a concerto for them. So Mr. Alessi picked Chris Rouse. Chris has said that uh, he only got to know the great Leonard Bernstein the year before this commission was offered to him in, in 1989. And Bernstein actually, I guess they spent some time together, and Bernstein said that he had been involved in the commissioning of this piece and that Bernstein had really hoped that he might be able to conduct the premiere uh, and was a big fan of, of Chris's music and they got to be rather friendly in this year. And then Bernstein in 1990 died. And so Chris, when he finally sat down to write the piece in 1990, 1991, wanted it to be an homage, uh, a, mo- a memory piece in honor of, of Bernstein and his legacy. And Chris, of course, was a huge fan of Bernstein's, having grown up uh, in a world that was so, musical world that was so dominated by Bernstein. And Bernstein was a great champion of many of Chris's heroes, William Schumann and the great American symphonists of the late 1940s and 50s. Those were composers who Bernstein was singularly known as the champion of. So uh, Chris sat down to write essentially a, a musical requiem for Bernstein. The work is in three movements, but they're connected, uh, the first to the second and the second to third, by two beautiful, not very long, but but very powerful solo cadenzas for the trombone. So you'll know that you've reached the end of the first movement, which is generally a very slow, powerful, but but very minimal movement, not minimalist, but minimal in that very little happens. Uh, it begins with a mysterious timpani and percussion dialoguing with the trombone in its very lowest register. And, and you'll find at the beginning of the piece and at the end of the piece, the trombone occupies this this low register and is always playing these two notes to sort of descent. Bo, bo, and you keep expecting it to go down to bo, but it never does. It can never quite get to the lowest note to what essentially is a, a G. And it's only at the very, very end of the piece that, that the trombone finally plays that lowest G. Uh, and as Chris said, it's, it's been described as a, a trombone in search of a G, the whole concerto. Um, but it's also the, the idea, I think, to Chris was that, that that descent is really about death and the G is, in essence, death. So it's only at the end where where we 
uh, experienced death. So the piece begins, as I said, very, very, with very minimal materials, just percussion and, and some low strings and some low winds. I should also mention that the orchestra Chris uses uh, eschews upper wind instruments. There's no flute, no oboe, no clarinet, only the low instruments, the bassoon and contrabassoon and the brass and the strings. And there's a lot of emphasis on the low sounds in the orchestra to sort of match this low register that he often favors for the trombone. So slow, funereal first movement, very powerful and poignant, incredible. And then there's this little cadenza and then an incredibly fast, incredibly challenging, wild middle movement filled with, I think, actually a fair amount of kind of Bernsteinian, Bernstein-like jazz, but also um, kind of a demonic movement, very difficult mixed meter. Uh, so the, 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 the meter, the pulse is never regular. There are these strange bars in 1516 and, and 1116 and makes the conductor's job and the instrumentalist's job in incredibly difficult because we're playing at incredibly fast speeds with very little notes, very short notes, uh, 16th notes, and yet the meter is forever changing and kind of turning upon itself. So Chris has said to me, and his music is known to be difficult generally, that this is known to be his most difficult piece of all because of this inner movement. So a wild uh, middle movement that builds itself to a sort of shattering climax in which the three trumpets sort of call out uh, and then the the trombone section uh, partners with the solo trombone in this wild semi-improvisational sort of call and that leads finally to uh, after this cataclysm to the, the the second cadenza and then into this beautiful slow very introspective uh, third movement which really is a funeral march in essence for Bernstein and at the very end of the piece uh, the the orchestra kind of dies down and you just hear the strings tremoloing just playing a little quiet chord in the background and the trombone sings this beautiful melody that is kind of familiar sounding because he's kind of been encoding it in the piece thus far. There have been little quotes from it early on, but ba 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 da dee da. It's a quote from Bernstein's uh, third symphony, the Kaddish Symphony, Kaddish being the Jewish prayer for the dead. So it's a, a pure quote from Bernstein from this beautiful piece about death. And then that leads finally to this ending where the trombone is finally able to descend to the low G and plays this final, very, very, this this note that now has this great sense of finality and the, the piece dies away or ends in quiet. Uh, so a very powerful, very dramatic, very poignant piece by Chris Rouse in memory of Leonard Bernstein. Our soloist is the Albany Symphony's very own principal trombonist, Greg Spiridopoulos, a great, great artist who's been with our orchestra for um, since 2001, so for a great number of years. We're very fortunate to have him. He's also the first call trombonist in all of Boston, uh, and he's the principal in um, the Rhode Island Philharmonic and the uh, second trombonist in the Portland, Maine Symphony, and he plays all over the country. He's a, a much-in-demand trombonist and a great artist and I'm delighted to say that thanks to the Albany Symphony's volunteer organization, Vanguard, which gives out these great study scholarships to our, our members uh, every year, Greg won one of these scholarships and was able to go down to New York and study the piece. It takes some lessons with Joe Alessi, the trombonist in the New York Philharmonic, who premiered the work and who, who in a sense, sort of owns the piece. And uh, they really got to be very friendly, and, and Joe Alessi opened some doors for Greg, discovering what a great trombonist he was. And so it was a great experience for Greg, and it's a great experience for us to partner with him on this amazing trombone concerto. The trombone concerto of Christopher Rouse from 1992. Greg Spiridopoulos, the Albany Symphony's principal trombonist, is the soloist with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. 
The second half of our program was comprised of two major works by the most divine of all French composers, Maurice Ravel. First up, Ravel's uh, charming and delightful evocation of childhood, his Mamerlois, or the Mother Goose Suite. This uh, set of pieces had a very uh, convoluted and, and complicated birth and history. Uh, they were written initially in 1910 by Ravel as uh, pieces for two pianists, written for the children of very good friends of him, the Gobelskis, Gobelskis, and the two children were six and seven years old, respectively, and both studied the piano. And Ravel, being a lover of the family and a lover of these charming children, uh, wanted to fashion a piece that was really special for them. So he created these beautiful five miniatures for two pianos. And uh, the piece was so charming and successful that he, the next year, orchestrated these pieces. And then the following year, he actually recast them as a ballet. And uh, the ballet was also a very successful piece. He, he added a great amount of material. So instead of it being about a 16 or 17-minute piece, it now was a 25 or 27-minute long piece. I tend to favor the uh, original orchestrations because I think they're just more pure and perfect. And I think that Ravel didn't quite have as much of his heart in the ballet when he added this additional incidental music to turn the piece into a ballet. So uh, we play the original orchestral version, the second version after the, the piano version. And the, the pieces are uh, charming not only because they're so musically simple and direct, but because Ravel wrote little notes to his performers uh, about them. The, the first one, the pavon of the, the Sleeping Beauty, uh, very simple and straight ahead. The second is uh, Little Tom Thumb, or Petite Pousset. So about this, uh, uh, in fact, the, the quote I think is, he thought he would be able to find the path easily by means of the bread he had strewn wherever he walked. But he was quite surprised when he was unable to find a single crumb. The birds had come and eaten them all. And so you hear in this one the, the string sort of wandering, meandering around, finding their way. And it's a charming little, beautiful second piece. The, the third piece is about uh, L'Etronette, the, the emperor of the pagodas. Uh, L'Etronette, I think, is loosely translated as the ugly little one. And she's, an, uh, I guess she had been under a spell. And uh, in this scene, this wonderful sort of chinoise kind of, of piece, what they would have called in the 19th century oriental sounding music, their idea of what the music of China might sound like. Uh, it's about uh, L'Etronette uh, taking her bath and, and getting in gingerly in the river. And as she gets in, all the mandarins, all the little beings play little walnut shells and play on little pipes and accompany her. So you hear the piccolo. And these wonderful sort of pizzicato, these plucked things in the strings. It's a very fabulous little chinoise sort of piece. Uh, the fourth movement is one of my favorites. It's uh, the conversation between beauty and the beast. And uh, he actually goes into what they say in, in the, the front piece to the, the movement. But what's important to know is that beauty is mainly played by the solo clarinet, and the beast is played in a stroke of great genius by the contrabassoon. This is the big double bassoon that looks like a huge piece of plumbing that sits next to the bassoon sometimes in certain pieces, uh, and it has the lowest, grumbliest sound. So you'll hear that, and that's the beast as he responds to beauty, and as the piece goes, it's in the form of a little waltz. Uh, you'll hear the two voices of the clarinet and the contrabassoon kind of answering each other and then eventually kind of talking at the same time. And then everything gets kind of still and you hear a, a harp glissando up and then the solo violin and you, you hear this transformation as the beast uh, turns into a prince. The final movement, the most beautiful of all the movements and frankly 
for my money, maybe the most beautiful four minutes of music or three minutes of music that Ravel ever wrote, The Enchanted Forest. doesn't have a story that necessarily goes along with it, but it is just the most magical music as it unfolds and leads to this beautiful, very brief little kind of toy fanfare that ends the piece. So the five pieces that make up the Mother Goose Suite, Ma Merlois, the orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Ma Merlois, or Mother Goose, the suite, uh, by Maurice Ravel, played by the Albany Symphony. The final work on our program, uh, Ravel's most famous piece, much to his dismay, I'll explain that in a moment, uh, his famous Bolero. Uh, This was a piece that Ravel wrote at the very end of his career, and he wrote it the way he describes it, simply as an exercise in crescendo. He wanted to see what happened if he wrote a piece that had the same material cycling over and over and over again, and if he just, using his incredible orchestrational skills, which were greater than anyone else in his time or perhaps any other, he had just the most wonderful orchestra chops of of any composer, and he could make such magic happen just by the choice of a particular instrument or particular combination of instruments. The idea was simply to take the same material and repeat it over and over again, almost at nauseum uh, and give it to different instruments and different groups of instruments and to build a gigantic orchestral crescendo over 16 or 17 minutes. Ravel never thought this was a very important piece. It was just a one-idea piece, and he was kind of mystified when it became a, an, a sort of gigantic cultural sensation. It, it ended up being a, a he, he ended up writing it as a ballet piece. He was going to orchestrate some pre-existing pieces by someone else, but found found out that they had already been been orchestrated by somebody else. So he decided to write a, a unique piece, a brand new piece for the great dancer Ida Rubinstein for this ballet commission, and he happened upon this little this little sort of uh, Spanish tune, as he, he thought it was. Originally, he intended to call it Fandango and then change the name to Bolero. Uh, Bolero, of course, is a Spanish dance form. And it was premiered in 1928 and was just this wild sensation. And he frankly was really kind of frustrated about the whole thing and often made disparaging comments about the piece because he really felt that there were so many other pieces of his that were so much more important and subtle and developed. And he never really understood why this was such a a sensation. I think we understand why it is because of that very mesmeric sense of it and also the incredible sensuality that it projects even as it continues the same material over and over again. There are actually two themes that go on. It's a a gigantic sort of 32-bar form, 16 bars uh, of the first theme and then 16 bars of the second theme, but with two bars in between of kind of introduction as it gets passed from instrument to instrument, four-bar introduction at the very beginning of the piece. It's just very, very colorful music, and it builds and builds, starting first with the very quiet solo flute and then solo clarinet, bassoon, E-flat clarinet. Uh, Then as it continues, different, somewhat more exotic instruments are included as well. Uh, In addition to the oboe, there's an instrument called the oboe d'amore, which is kind of halfway between an oboe and an English horn. It's sort of the alto version of the oboe family, but a very unusual instrument and an instrument that's not often played and it's very hard to play in tune, the oboe d'amore, but it's got a somewhat darker, lower sound than the typical oboe. And so I guess to Ravel sounded more sensual. 
And then two saxophones, a tenor saxophone and a, a brilliant soprano or sopranino saxophone. And then there's some wonderful color combinations. My favorite is where he has the horn play, mezzo forte, and then he has the celesta, the, the keyboard uh, glockenspiel play piano, and then two piccolos play in upper partials at very strange intervals above it. And he manages to create an organ sound out of those four instruments that you hear it and you think, what instrument is that? It sounds like an instrument, and yet it's a combination of four instruments. Very magical orchestration. And as the piece goes, it gets more and more animated. But I should mention that the tempo is never supposed to change. It never should get faster. And Ravel was very angry when he went to performances and conductors sped up the tempo. In fact, he was most angry when he came to New York and Toscanini did the piece. Toscanini was reputed to be a great interpreter of the piece. Ravel was deeply offended because Toscanini played the piece fast. And according to the story... When Toscanini beckoned to Ravel to take a solo bow, he refused to stand up and acknowledge, and they didn't even shake hands, and it took some months for them to put it back together and to become friendly again because Ravel was so offended that Toscanini took a fast tempo. Ravel, even though he wrote... I think he initially wrote quarter equals 76. He tended to take it too slowly, slower than his metronome mark, and Toscanini, I guess, took it a little bit faster. But I find that it's now in the score, and I guess Ravel ultimately adjusted the tempo to be 72 to the quarter note, which seems like a perfect tempo. It's a little bit on the moving side, so it doesn't get stodgy. But according to all reports, Ravel liked it on the slow side and, and hated whenever a conductor would like start at one tempo and then speed it up. So we today always try to keep a very steady tempo. The other strange feature of it is that it's all over one chord. I mean, the, the, basically, the harmony never changes. Uh, it's only a C major chord for 14 and a half, 15 minutes. And then for about eight bars at the end, it shifts up a third to E major, very bright and quite shocking when the, the, the harmony actually moves. And then it moves back down and ends in C. So an incredibly static piece, an incredibly singular and, dare I say, strange piece to fashion a whole 16-minute piece out of just these very basic ideas, repeating, 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 and yet ultimately really one of the most arresting pieces of the early 20th century, Maurice Ravel's Bolero, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.